There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we meet the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, the editor of Prospect magazine. This week we're talking to the American political commentator and former George W. Bush speechwriter David Frum. Frum is nowadays a senior editor at the Atlantic magazine and the author of some nine books. His latest, Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy, unpacks why, in 2016, a large number of voters put their faith in Trump and why, no matter what happens in the election this November, the chaos that the current president has inflicted on the country could distort it for many years to come. So, David, thank you very much for joining us. As um, I look through your book, the first question that occurs to me is how frightened should America be? Are you really thinking we could be looking at the end of the American Republic as we've known it? Thank you, and it's a pleasure to join you here in Prospect. Uh, I've written out two, two books about Donald Trump, one called Trumpocracy, about the methods of his rule, one called Trumpocalypse, that's the book in 2020, about the impending end and what comes after. One of the things I've always tried to do is to situate our understanding of Trump in the context of, of what's what a modern rule of law state needs to worry about. Um, you know, there are many stops on the train line of bad before you get to Hitler station. And I think there's a tendency for some of the commentary on Donald Trump um, to minimize his harm by exaggerating his um, immediate impact. So democracy is not like a, a light switch on or off. It's a dimmer. It gets better or worse. Uh, even today, Viktor Orban's Hungary has many elements of democratic government, although we can see that it has passed away from being a true rule of law democracy. The danger of Donald Trump in the United States has not been that he would overthrow the American Republic. It's just too heavy. The danger has been that his corruption, his abuse of power, has is changing the rules of the game in ways that will have long-term effect. His, his re refusal to be overseen by Congress, his um, burning of... 50 years and more of ethics rules, um, his discovery of the political power of incitement of group against group. Um, these techniques that he's 
pioneered, they're not going away. Everybody knows them. They're part of our political knowledge and they will shape the future of America. Can you just say a word about how your own journey from within the kind of movement conservative of late 20th century America has, has gone? I mean, a lot of sort of liberal prospect readers, you know, despaired at the Iraq war, which your introduction now, now records as a mistake. But you did write back in 1994 that this kind of movement that you were in some ways associated with was susceptible to demagogue takeover. What, what made you worry about that all those years ago? Okay. Well, this is a long story, and I will, I will try to keep it very short. Um, uh, I um, was born in 1960. Um, I'm a child of the, uh, cold, of the later half of the Cold War. I was born and raised in Canada, and so I grew up under the protection of um, American, the American security system and American free trade. Um, my family was very much... Um, bloodied uh, in the European Holocaust of Jewry. And um, I had a, I always had a strong sense that ju justice when not backed by power becomes a victim. And I looked to the United States to defend uh, a world based on um, justice, open trade, collective security, democracy. Uh, as a college student in the United States, I came from a border family. And we, um, some of my relatives are American, some Canadian. I went to school in the United States. I uh, got involved in the conservative politics of the time. I uh, distributed leaflets for Ronald Reagan in my college town in 1980. And I spent then much of my early career in politics and journalism. As you mentioned, my first book in 1994, Dead Right, made a prediction, it made a number of predictions. But one of the predictions was that the impact, the, the weight of religion in American society would begin to decline. In those days, America looked like a real outlier among the democracies, um, whereas all the other democracies were becoming very much more secular. The United States in the middle 1990s uh, was not. And I predicted in 1994 this would not continue, that America would catch up, and that the power of evangelical religion within the conservative world was fated to decline and to be replaced by um, ethnic nationalism. Um, in other words, that. that um, that Jerry Falwell was the past and somebody like Donald Trump was the future. And I wrote this not to celebrate this trend, but to warn against it and to um, put down markers against how to, uh, it could be prevented. I want to work, as you said. In the you must have thought that it was possible to go in a different and a happier direction, I guess, at that point. It's always, it is always possible to make choices. That's the whole point of politics. Um, it's one of the reasons I, um, I, I always caution people that, beware of speaking of the future as a thing that exists that you can make comments about. The future is something we shape and we are all collectively engaged in the process of shaping it. That's why political discussion is so important. You're not just talking, you're, you're doing. I went to work in the George W. Bush administration in uh, 2000 and uh, just after the election. I had not been a supporter of George W. Bush's during the primaries. I preferred John McCain. Um, but the, uh, the, the campaign reached out to me after the election. And uh, after some hesitation, which I described in the book I wrote about that experience, um, uh, I, I joined and served for two years. And as you say, I, uh, I mean, I, my, my remit was mostly domestic policy. Um, I, I was, we had a tiny little team of speechwriters compared to past presidents. And I was in charge of almost all domestic political communication, trade, taxes, ag, transportation, all the things that nobody um, remembers but the Bush years. <laughs> um, but um, amid all that obscurity, I, I did collaborate on what became known as the axis of, of evil speech, which um, 
is a poorly remembered speech, I find, because people forget that it was delivered in 2002 and not 2003. Um, and what the speech was about was it was a kind of reveal of a lot of information that was highly classified then, but is universally known now. In 2002, it was a very, it was considered a clever thing to say that it was impossible that Iran could be supporting Hamas because Hamas, after all, was, was Sunni and Iran was Shiite and was everyone um, who'd taken an undergraduate course in Middle Eastern studies knew those two groups could never ever cooperate. It was regarded as impossible that it could be true that, um, uh, the pa that Pakistan or people in the Pakistani nuclear program might be sharing nuclear secrets or trying to with Osama bin Laden. That couldn't be happening. It was widely agreed that it was just impossible that Iran and North Korea could be swapping missile technology for um, uh, nuclear weapons technology. One was a theocracy, the other was a Stalinist dictatorship. How could that be? And yet all of those things were indeed happening and were known to be happening. Um, and so the speech was about those connections between these rogue states and uh, many international terrorist groups. And it looked for a way to explain, this wasn't an alliance exactly, they obviously had important differences and they weren't really partners. Each of them had it was in its own local context, but there was a, a global international problem connected to um, the increasing availability of weapons of mass destruction. Um, spread by a man called A.Q. Khan, the Johnny Appleseed, of the Pakistani nuclear program, who was, whose, whose name was absolutely unknown in the Western world in 2002. So that's what the, the speech was about. Um, I left the Bush administration um, just on the eve of the Iraq war, um, uh, not for any big reason, I just didn't love being a speechwriter. Um, I, I liked writing for myself, I didn't like writing for other people, so, um, but I remained a supporter of the administration and its policies, including the Iraq war. And, uh, I, but I became, remember my remit had been domestic policy. So I, I became, I went back to studying that and it became evident to me that the economic expansion of the early 2000s was not working for people the way previous economic expansions had. And I began to write about that. At first, from a highly party political point of view, you know, if we don't see incomes rising, George Bush's reelection could be in trouble in 2004. And then, hmm. then, I, my urgency about it expanded, not just that this was going to be bad for Bush, it was also bad for everybody. Um, and so I began in, the, in about 2006, seven, writing articles and then a book about ways to modernize and reform conservatism, um, to make it more culturally modern, more environmentally responsible, and more economically inclusive. I can pause there because I, the story is taking too long, but there's one more data point. Um, the result of that was when, after the, um, global economic crisis and after the election of Barack Obama and when Barack Obama um, introduced his Affordable Care Act, I began writing very urgently that I thought it was a good idea for Republicans to try to negotiate the Affordable Care Act uh, to make it more acceptable from a conservative point of view rather than fight it to the death as was done. And I predicted you will not be able to stop this thing. They've got the votes. They also remember what happened to them after Bill Clinton was defeated after Bill Clinton's health care plan was defeated in 1993, history will not repeat itself. Do not try. There are many elements of health care reform that we should want to please negotiate. And um, I put that in one article a little too pungently. Um, and I was then working at a conservative think tank. I, I got sacked from the think tank in 2010. Um, but of course, all of that was, um, was proven right by events, unfortunately. 
it's a fascinating it's a fascinating journey and looking at the uh, the new book now where you talk um in quite broad terms you know not just about this administration here or that healthcare dilemma there but the years roughly 1980 up until the present where you know as many um i think you'd call them big p progressive economists you know the sort of joseph stiglitz of the world would sort of say yeah yeah it's, it's gone wrong because Business was in the driving seat, writing its own regulation. Tax burdens fell too heavily away on ordinary incomes and not top incomes. And lots of those social problems, it, it feels like now you're coming at this from a, 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 a non-party perspective, really. Is that right? Well, I, I remain a, 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 quite a conservative person, and I remain a registered Republican here in the District of Columbia, where I live. But I do think that, partly because of the long lifespan of the baby boomers, uh, that American politics has tended to be fossilized in patterns that were set a long time ago and that just don't answer the questions of today. Uh, one of my deepest convictions is, is that, um, look, ethics are important, but politics is not a subset of ethics. Uh, it, political truths are not eternally true. Um, and so people will say, how can you be in favor of a tax cut in, two, in 1981 and not in favor of the tax cut in 2017? I'm still in favor of that tax cut back in night. Conditions were different. Conditions were different. Uh, you know, uh, the fact that I, I wore a, um, a coat on Christmas Day doesn't mean I'm going to wear a coat on the 4th of July. Fair enough. So let's go to just the other end of the political spectrum now, because it's pretty obvious reading you would rather see Trump defeated than not because of everything that he threatens for American democracy. But you've also got worries about I suppose I'd call it the tone deafness of uh, the, the woke end of the Democrats. Well, I urgently hope that President Trump will be defeated. And I think that the heavier the defeat, the more hope we have, not only for a renaissance of American politics, but for a renaissance of the Republican Party, because I think Republicans need to learn some lessons about, I'm not going to persuade them that this was a wrong thing to do until they absorb that it was an unprofitable thing to do. They need to discourse their ill-gotten gains, and only then will they begin to reflect and reform and lead um, uh, better, more wholesome lives in the future. Uh, but yes, I do have to worry about the Democratic side. I and mean, we are, uh, at, this book was written mostly in 2018 and 2019. Um, parts of it were revised uh, with the pandemic in mind. I, was I did anticipate a recession in 2020, but I thought it would be driven by Trump's protectionist trade policies, not by the pandemic, which of course I did not foresee. But I was able to, to inter weave that into the story. I was also expecting foreign policy troubles. But there are concerns for the Democrats too, and above them is the, is the rise. There are illiberal ideologies on the left. The rise of illiberalism, I mean, I think the whole left-right complex that we've inherited is, is a map drawn in the 1970s. And we're trying to navigate the world of the 21st century with a map that's, that's largely out of date. So one of the questions we're asked a lot is, isn't it terrible how the Russians are anti-science? Yes, it is indeed terrible. The Republicans are anti-science and it's terrible that they don't listen um, to wise advice about climate change and, and other scientifically based concerns. But it's predominantly not Republicans who think that cellular telephone towers are, are causing COVID. That, that is a left-wing delusion. It's not, and it is both Republicans and Democrats who have turned against childhood immunization. Um, and indeed, that, that some of the worst centers of non-immunization in the United States are in places like the California, the San Francisco Bay Area, heartlands of liberal America. They, yeah, that's 
It's a case here as well. It's a kind of... It's a case. I'm sure that's true. So, so in many ways, we need a new map for a new world. And we need a new map, especially for a post-baby boom world. We cannot go on arguing forever about the events of 1968. But, I mean, the most immediate way this is going to come up is obviously in November. Uh, the Democrats, in the end, have chosen someone who seems to blow the wind a little bit in terms of his political positioning, but is certainly not seen as an extremist in Joseph Biden. Do you think that the Democrats, though, are still vulnerable on this culture war stuff? So just be, you've got a lovely example in the, in the book where you say, you know, if you talk about white privilege, you're onto a losing wicket, whereas if you talk about barriers to minorities, then actually the majority of even conservative Americans can be carried with yeah. you. Do, do you think the Democrats well, the Biden that, get that, that stuff? Thank you. That, that is a really powerful survey. And, and just to make it more explicit, so readers will, or listeners will understand the power of what we're talking about. Um, a pollster took a group of, I believe this was done in South Carolina, and asked two questions. The first question is, do you believe that whites are specially privileged? And the second question was, do you believe that, that non-whites are specially disadvantaged? Now, of course, you, the reader of Pod, uh, Prospect Magazine and the listener to a Prospect podcast will, un will understand these two questions are logically identical. <laughs> They're two identical logical propositions. But it probably won't surprise you to hear that when you ask a group of white South Carolinians whether they thought whites had privilege, they angrily rejected the idea. But if you ask those same people, do you think non-whites have special burdens, a majority of them accepted the idea, including um, a plurality of the most conservative people. So. What, what was logical yielded to what was critical, that, that people, that Americans will, or any human beings, I think, will respond to invitations to be just and generous in a different way from the way they respond to accusations and criticisms. And just, sir, isn't this true of all of us as individuals too? Don't we respond the same way? Mm. And so I, I talk in the book about the dangers of this of wokeism, which isn't really even a political ideology, it's a religion. Um, it, it, and indeed, it's language of awakening. We, you know, we had in American history the first great awakening in the 1740s and the uh, second great awakening in the 1840s, and we have these periodic bursts of religious revival. And even though we are now a much more secular country, the cast of mind is still there, and that's what wokeism is, is about sin, uh, it's about atonement, it's about public testimony, and then, of course, it's about salvation. But it's not politics because it doesn't have answers to, to the kinds of collective, the, the kinds of practical collective questions to which politics, as opposed to religion, is an answer. And do you feel, I mean, we run a piece by Sam Tannenhaus in our last issue saying, actually, Biden is going to struggle quite badly because with the uprising and so on that's going on at the moment, Trump's got a really clear way to rally a base in an Nixonian way towards law and order and everything, whereas he worries that Biden isn't going to have anything much to, to rally people. I, I, I don't worry very much about this in electoral terms, because I think Trump is in so much at this point electoral trouble that it, it is very hard to imagine events that will save him. And I think the 1968 election analogy is really misplaced. I've written this. The most important thing to remember about 1968 was that it was a three-way election, not a two-way election. It's for British listeners with, with Nixon, isn't it? The first... Yes. So, so 1968, um, 
Uh, Lyndon Johnson is president. Uh, America's wrapped in the agonies of the Vietnam War. And then there's a spasm of urban violence that takes place, beginning with the Watts riot in 1964, culminating in huge riots after the murder of Martin Luther King in April 1968. Over those four years, hundreds of people are left dead in urban rioting. Vast sections of the downtowns of great American cities are burned out. And many cities, Detroit, Detroit never recovers. Uh, parts of Washington, D.C. that were burned in April 68 had still not recovered when I arrived in the city in 1996. Nothing like that is happening today. I don't think people should daub graffiti on statues, and I don't think they should break windows. But both graffiti and broken windows can be repaired within days. You're not going to be struggling for a generation to rebuild downtown Washington. Um, you know, as of today, you would not know that there had been any disturbances at all. Uh, Minneapolis has, uh, and many of the video scenes that you've seen, even of Minneapolis. If you watch carefully, what you will see is that the person making the viral video clip is driving down a block in a drive that takes three or four seconds and then is rerunning like an old poorly animated cartoon, that same loop over and over and over again to give the impression that blocks and blocks of uh, Minneapolis have been burned out like Berlin in 1945. And that's just not true. So, yeah, but the, so this scale of the consequences of the, it's just nothing like 68. The other important difference, though, is that Richard Nixon was not the, well, another difference, Richard Nixon was not the incumbent. He was not saying, let me fix this mess I've made. He said, let me fix this mess Lyndon Johnson has made. But the most important thing to remember is it was a three-way race. Richard Nixon ran for the Republicans. Hubert Humphrey who had been Lyndon Johnson's vice president, ran to succeed Lyndon Johnson and inherited the discredit of, all, of both Vietnam and the disturbances. And there was a right-wing candidate, George Wallace, who won five states in the Electoral College in 1968, who was running as a segregationist. So Nixon was constantly pivoting uh, against both Wallace and Humphrey. And his speeches would say literally things like, um, there can be no justice without order, and conservatives would cheer. And then he would tell, say, there can be no order without justice, and appeal to liberals. Um, Finally, Nixon's ads, uh, when you watch the, the ads he made, the TV ads, and it was a, TV was a much more powerful and important medium then than it is now, what you see the images of disorder he would take also criticized racist violence. Um, there are many images of the police of Mayor Daley in Chicago behaving in brutal ways. So when Nixon is talking about law and order, he's promising peace not only against um, urban rioters, not only against left-wing anti-Vietnam students, but also against these out-of-control cops controlled by political allies of Lyndon Johnson, which Mayor Daley was. Um, Richard Nixon, last point about this, remember, had been the vice president to Dwight Eisenhower. And that's what Americans knew about him in 1968. He had been the number two to the president who presided over the most peaceful years of the 20th century. And so Nixon, Nixon's offer of social peace seemed very credible. In many ways, he, Biden, is running the Nixon campaign, uh, which is, did you like the last guy? I was his number two. It was quiet then. I'll restore quiet. Okay. Well, this is, this is, this is sounding um, much more <laughs> reassuring. Um, but um, well, let me unreassure you because the, the risk, uh, this is where I agree with my, my good friend, Sam. Um, Biden's problems with the Democratic left begin after he wins. Isn't that, I don't think they, that they are sufficient to prevent him from winning in the first place, not in the face of a pandemic and an economic disaster and, and now these urban disorders which are engaging the sympathy of the majority of Americans. How does this um, veteran politician 
who's in, in the later part of his career, uh, who will have limited energy and will have a big democratic majority in Congress very likely, how does he govern a party that is way to his own left? That's going to be his problem. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, okay. Um, but even before we can get to that, and to be slightly more on Trumpocalypse again, there's the whole business of your anachronistic election institutions to get through there yes. might, or might not be trouble with bill Barr and i don't know pushing the law in terms of what the government's going to try and do in terms of how it runs this election and then there's also just perhaps the most fundamental thing the the sort of republican idea i, I mean republic as in the american republic the ideal of the loser's consent that the people who are going to go down in this election are going to accept okay they one and they're going to regroup and, and try again in four years' time. All of those things look like quite messy things between here and any Biden inauguration, don't they? They certainly are. You know, if you've spent time in the United States during an election transition, one of the things that I think will strike the British viewer as weird, if not kind of offensive, is that on Inauguration Day, the commentators, there's a lot of time to fill, actually, should, to be fair to the commentators, there's a lot of airtime to fill on Inauguration Day because nothing much happens. For, the coverage starts at 9 a.m. Uh, nothing much happens until noon. Uh, then there's a swearing in, a short speech, and, you know, not a really first-class parade. And then that's it. Um, that's it. That's your coverage. You have to fill hours with it. So you'll hear endless invocations of the, uh, of the remarkable miracle of the peaceful transition of power. And people talk about that over and over again. And I watch this and I, as a Canadian, I think, when... One Danish prime minister walks out of office and the next Danish prime minister walks in. No one in Denmark says self-congratulatory things about the peaceful transition of power. <laughs> you know, Prime Minister Olaf Rasmussen left, Prime Minister Rasmussen Olaf walks in. <laughs> um, and uh, that's that. Like, and in, in Britain, I mean, how, uh, you know, you... you you change political leaders these days faster than many people change their shirts in the days of coronavirus. 
Um, and again, no one says it's something remarkable when Theresa May leaves and is peacefully succeeded by somebody else. But the reason, the, the, aside from the need to fill airtime, what is back with this is actually around American elections, there's always a lot of potential. You feel it in the air. There is potential for violence. This is a country of all the democracies. This is the one where the state's monopoly of violence is least agreed. And we have had many elections, not only 1861, um, but 1860, followed by 1861 in the Civil War, but other elections too, where violent civil turmoil was a real possibility um, in the air, if not done by, in an organized way, but by, by, by private groups. That was true in, as recently as 1968, where we had a spasm of, of, of urban terrorism, um, you know, whether, you know, radical left-wing groups is an important factor in, in the Democratic Party losing power. So there's a lot of mischief. And as you say, our election system, the, the, the advantage of a written constitution is that you know where you stand. The disadvantage is it's quite hard for it to adapt to changing realities in the way that the British constitution has adapted to realities over time. And so much of our constitution remains stuck in the 19th century, including, and this is something I talk a lot about Trumpocalypse, the highly partisan political nature of our administration of justice. It is, it's pretty astonishing that almost all federal prosecutors are patronage appointees, um, that they report to a patronage appointee who in turn reports to another patronage appointee. It sounds like maybe you don't have quite enough of um, the deep state in the, you know, as you know from your- I have, a, cha the I have a chapter on the, on the deep state. And um, indeed, we don't have a civil service as um, somebody in Britain would recognize the civil service, that the top two or three layers of management are political. But there's something else about the deep state. As, as you know, um, the term originates in, of all things, the political science of the Republic of Turkey, um, where it, it describes um, the security apparatus left behind by Kemal Ataturk to keep an eye on the democratic politicians. Um, Ataturk always worried the democratic politicians wouldn't be secular enough. And so he left behind this powerful hidden apparatus of, of Kemalism to keep his ideas alive even after he died. And similar systems were then set up in Pakistan and Egypt. So Steve Bannon, who was President Trump's intellectual advisor, and, and it was kind of a magpie picking up bits of knowledge here and there, um, he fastened on this term. And then when Donald Trump, as president, would say, let's do this, and someone would say to him, you can't, that's illegal, that Bannon became, ah, I remember this from my um, brief acquaintance with Turkish political science, that this is the deep state. But as I argue in the book, the, the the, the power of the term the deep state is it refers, it originally referred to a group of people with unaccountable power um, who defied the legal order. In the Trump administration, that's the Trump crew. I mean, Donald, it, it, we have a legal order that Donald Trump is at the head of and that he has enormous powers to change. If he wanted, for example, to reorient US foreign policy toward Russia, which I don't advise, obviously, but if he wanted to, he could have done so. He could have appointed um, a pro-Russia um, Secretary of State. He could have appointed a pro-Russian National Security Advisor. He did do that, but the guy got into legal trouble. He could have then replaced him with another pro-Russia National Security Advisor. Um, he could have invited Putin to Camp David. He could have um, waived sanctions. He could have withdrawn U.S. troops from um, the Baltic Republics in Romania where they're deployed. He could have done all, he didn't do any of those things. He, every place where the continuity of, pol of policy was in writing. He signed the papers, he imposed the sanctions, he did not issue the waivers. He, in every formal legal way, chose to continue most of the policy of 
Presidents Obama and George W. Bush before him. Then he built his own secret cabal within the government to subvert his own formal legal policy. He was the deep state. He was doing what those Kamalist generals were doing. He was subverting the legal system that he had power to change if his mo but he didn't he never used that power because it was obvious his motives were corrupt. And he so he did he did stealthily and lawlessly what he had the ability to do publicly and legally had he not been such a crook. I mean, the, the, the book is extremely eloquent on, you know, the, the uh, just the sheer brass neck of Trump time and again. And also sometimes like with the Mueller inquiry, the sort of insistence on tackling him with the gloves on by people on the other side that doesn't doesn't seem yes. to work. But I would like to close things off by talking because it is a it's a reformist book. I think you say it's a big P progressive book in terms of um, what it wants to do for well, advocates. Well, this, this may not resonate in your political tradition, but in, in, in the United States, progressivism with a lowercase p has come to mean the agenda of the political left, whatever it is at any given moment. Uh, progressivism with an uppercase p uh, refers to a very specific moment of reform that flourished between about 1900 and the early 1920s and that was concerned above all with making American institutions function better, putting an end to municipal corruption, um, making, making the Senate less of a disgrace, uh, uh, making, uh, making the government more professional and um, effective. And so I, I said, I know we are heading into a lowercase p progressive moment, um, but what we most urgently need is an uppercase p uh, progressive political moment where we make, we make the state more effective, more modern. And so I have a series of suggestions about how we can do that. But because I recognize that politics does not operate autonomously, it's driven by society, I then have some other reforms, which are both conservative and liberal, but how to make the society a little less angry and a little less divided as a way to support the possibility of big P progressive political reform. If it's put together, if, you know, there's a kind of... Um, you know, small p progressive, but done in a um, expansive and not a sectarian way. And so you get the social policy right. Do you think, because the thing political scientists always say about the US is getting anything changed on the constitution or uh, rationalising the way the Senate works and all this kind of stuff is some um, very, very difficult unless you, there was a sort of almost a moment of emergency to un unblock things. Are you an optimist that this could now be done? If well, you all, the thing, all the proposals I advance are subconstitutional. Um, and so I am very, con I, I, in the book, I allude to, but I don't take up, uh, reforms that would require really important changes uh, in, in, the, in the American system. I, I, you know, I'm, I say those are interesting and we should think about them and states might want to experiment with them, but let us focus for now uh, on what can be immediately achieved. Because my guess is that President Biden is going to have two years. I think the recovery from this pandemic will be slow. The full recovery from the pandemic will be slow. I think there will be discontent in the country uh, in the first two years of the Biden administration, and Republicans will have some possibilities in 2022 in the congressional elections, and I don't anticipate the party will have had time by 2022 to break from Trumpism and reform itself. So my advice to uh, the Biden administration is, is work on the assumption of two years. And so focus on things that you can do in the first days. So I, I don't talk about the Electoral College. What I do talk about is getting rid of the filibuster. So, yep. so you need 
as, as unresponsive as the Senate is, it's even crazier that you require 60 votes to pass big things, not 50. And by the way, that's quite a new adaptation of the, of the filibuster that everything can be filibustered. The filibuster is not some ancient um, time-honored ritual. Um, it's, it's mostly new and it's, um, and it's become ever more aggressive. So, and it can be got rid of just by a, a gavel, it's not, in, it's not a law, it's certainly not in the Constitution, it's not even a law, it's a rule of the Senate. And a majority of the Senate can change the rules and insist that that's how it's just going to be. Um, I talk about making the, the residential areas of the District of Columbia a state, um, which is a way of adding two urban seats to the Senate, uh, two seats that will probably likely be won by people of color, as a way of making the Senate less of a scandal and disgrace. Um, and again, that just takes... Once you've abolished the filibuster, that just takes a majority vote of the House, the Senate, and the President's signature. Um, that, and that can be done real fast and should be done. Um, the District of Columbia is now home to more people than either Wyoming or Vermont. And at its present rate of growth, it will, within a matter of a couple of years, we have more people than Alaska or North Dakota. And it's crazy that it's not a state. Um, three quarters of a million people here have no representation in Congress. David, thank you very much indeed. That's been fascinating to talk all of that through with you. And that's all from us. Thanks for joining us on this week's Prospect interview. If you enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review, which really does help. Rebecca Liu is our producer. Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.